how can I know God's will for my life? That was the exact question that Paul submitted to me about four months ago. If I can take you back, Paul was uh, our youth pastor for about 15 years, and he had a pretty standard pattern. He spent a lot of evenings with kids at games and concerts and rarely got in before noon. He would normally, as soon as he'd come in, one of the first things he'd do is he'd knock on my door and stick his head in my office and ask how I was doing, and we would talk, sometimes minutes, sometimes longer, about all of the important things in life, like the Vikings and the Hawkeyes. And sometimes, yes, we even talked about church, and over the last couple years, obviously, a lot about the building. This fall, Paul stopped coming into my office. And I finally, I gave him a few days, I wanted to give him, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I, I one afternoon decided I'm going to go see. I knocked on his door and he was sitting in his office and had this perplexed, confused look on his face. He had his Bible open and I asked him how he was doing and he looked at me and you've had that experience where somebody doesn't answer right away and you can tell the question is pretty hard. He looked at me and he said, how do I know what God's will is for my life? If you were at his wedding, I, I shared, I instantly knew he had either met a woman or he has taken another job. I didn't understand he was doing both. <laughs> my answer at that point was, I'm convinced we find God's will by doing the next right thing. I wish I'd been smart enough to take him back to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, Paul begins by saying, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that is your reasonable, your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will of you. If you were here last week, we uh, shared that we're in a transition period. The the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans really are Paul's doctrinal dissertation. And and last week, we went back and we looked at some of these doctrines that Paul talks about. I I don't want to go there this morning, but in the second half, he's really going to shift from his doctrine to duty, from what we believe to how we behave, from our theology to our practice. And and he's going to, in the, the final four chapters, talk about how we love one another how we submit to those God has placed in authority in our lives and how we find a way to get along with those that we don't agree on what he calls disputable matters. But in the middle, there is this incredible hinge, this amazing verse that I would love to take weeks to look at. We're not going to do it. But I I do want to to take just a moment because I I think Paul is trying to help us to understand how we can find God's will. But be honest. Wouldn't you like God to show you his will like he did to Paul? You you remember the story uh, as Paul in Acts chapter 9 is walking on the road to Damascus intending to arrest and to persecute Christians and suddenly there is this bright light and God himself speaks to Paul and leaves no ambiguity as to what his will is for Paul. In fact, he says, he sends Adonis, go tell this man he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer. Paul, a Pharisee, a a Pharisee of the Pharisees, instantly had his entire life redirected from focusing on God's people, the Jews, 
to becoming the apostle to the Gentiles. The rest of Paul's ministry life would be primarily focused on outsiders as he viewed them. But that wasn't the only time. Fast forward to chapter 13 and Paul is now helping in the church at Antioch when one day the Holy Spirit shows up and speaks audibly so everybody in the church service knows. And he says, I want you to separate Barnabas and Saul. I have a plan. I'm going to send them to share the good news of Jesus with the rest of the world. You fast forward to what I would argue is maybe the second most important moment in human history. Paul, on his second missionary journey, is traveling and comes to the point in Asia Minor where he desires to go east to take the gospel maybe to China, and God says no. He then decides, I want to go north to Bithynia. In fact, I want to go to Russia, and God says no. And Paul then goes to the city of Troas. On the very coast of the continent of Asia, he has this vision of a man from Macedonia, a man from Greece saying, Paul, come over to us. And rather than the gospel being centered in the nation of China for the last 2,000 years, or in the nation of Russia, Europe has the gospel given to it. And imagine how history would be different. But Paul understood this is God's will for my life. And then a few days later, he's eventually chased from town to town and he ends up in the city of Corinth and God comes again to Paul and says, I want you to stay here. I will protect you. Don't travel anywhere. And for the first time, he makes a city his home for 18 months. Eventually, he'll continue his ministry. He'll go on a third missionary journey. And that third missionary journey will end with some pretty amazing miracles, but ultimately it will end up with the Apostle Paul in prison, wondering whether or not he will survive. And God comes again and says, Paul, I'm sending you to Rome. And through all of the storms, Paul arrives in Rome. Paul never wondered what God's will was. Wouldn't you like to have God just show up at your door tomorrow morning and say, this is your decision? Well, if I could caution you a little bit, he normally does that when you're about to go through some really, really hard things. Listen to Paul's life. Get beaten up more times than he can count, get shipwrecked three times, be stoned and left for dead, and eventually lose your head. But what I find really kind of fascinating is, now I, I will admit this is an argument from silence, but we never read of God coming to Peter and doing that. John wrote five books in the New Testament. We don't hear God doing that for John. What about Andrew? What about Matthew? What about the rest of the apostles? What about you? What about me? Should I be sitting waiting for God to give me a vision of the man from Macedonia? An audible encouragement? I I think Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2 is going to lay out uh, three steps in finding God's world. I I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we looked at it last week, but I'm convinced that to find God's will, it begins with laying my body on the altar of God and saying, my life is no longer my own. It is yours. It's kind of an oxymoronic statement. Sacrifices aren't living. In fact, the whole purpose of a sacrifice is to kill it. But you are to present your body as a living sacrifice. And we didn't talk about it last week, but the word offer is in Greek an aristense. I know that probably doesn't mean a lot to you, but what aristense is is a single past event. 
This isn't something you do every day. Sadly, because it's a living sacrifice, sometimes we crawl off the altar and we may need to do it again. But it's intended to be a once forever God. My life is yours. Do as you want with it. And once we've come there, the next step is to stop being conformed to this world. I, I, I fear that when we start talking about being conformed to the world, there's a, a couple dangers that we have to be a little bit careful of. I, I, I just think sometimes when you read a passage you're so familiar with, there's help in reading other translations. So let me share six of them. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. Don't act like the sinful people of the world. The message says don't become so adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. The voice says don't allow this world to mold you into its image. And I personally like the J.P.J.B. Phillips. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. We are not to be like the world. Can I, can I start with a couple dangers? I, I fear that far too often we view that in physical terms. In fact, if you go back to the Gospels, the Pharisees were really, in many regards, as disciplined people as you would ever meet. They consumed their life with two things, the learning and the living of the law. And they were incredibly good at it. In fact, you can still see some of those remnants in our world today. If you go to the wall today, you will see where God says that you are supposed to keep his word on your forearm and on your forehead. If you'll notice, there's two boxes there. They contain God's word. They wear it on their forehead and on their arms. They, they do this as they, they worship the shawls. If you notice, he's holding his tassels. The more righteous you are, the longer your tassels are. The hair on the sides of their heads weren't supposed to be shaved. If you've ever seen a Hasidic or an Orthodox Jew, you will see that. If you go into an Orthodox kitchen today, it has two sinks, two sets of pans, two sets of dishes. Because meat and dairy can never touch. But if you go back to the Gospels, you will remember that Jesus was harshest on the Pharisees because for them, it was all about the externals. Not so much about the heart. See, I I, I fear that it's really easy to say, I'm not going to conform to the world. And we come up with this sets of do's and don'ts, these rules, these, uh, these regulations. And soon we're not using zippers. We're using buttons. We only wear black. I don't believe he's primarily concerned about the externals. He's concerned about your heart. But I think there's another danger on the other extreme. Okay, I'm not going to be conformed to the world, so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. As you study church history, you will find periods in which the most spiritual people went and lived in a monastery. All away from all of the world because they didn't want to conform to the world. Jesus, in his final prayer, is incredibly specific that we are to be of the world in the world, but not of the world. We are to be insulated, not isolated. That it is our responsibility to live in the world. In fact, I would suggest the only thing you can do today you can't do in heaven is to be a light to a world that needs to hear of Jesus. 
And thus, when he says, don't be conformed, I, I, I hope that we don't see this as simply mere externals. But he says that we need to be careful of the, the world. Now, in the New Testament, there's two words that are translated world. The more common one is the word cosmos. That's a Greek word that's brought into English, and I'm guessing you've heard it. In our vernacular, cosmos speaks of the universe, usually. In the New Testament, I would define the cosmos as that system directed by Satan to pretend like God doesn't exist. Have you met anybody who wants to pretend God didn't exist? That's the world. But that's not the word he uses here. John uses that word repeatedly. Paul uses the word eon, which you've also heard in English. It's been eons since we started the book of Romans. It speaks of this extended period. In the New Testament, there really are only two eons. There is the age today and the age that will come. Which one are you living for? May I suggest Paul's life makes no sense if this age is the only age there is. It makes no sense to get beaten up, to be abused, and eventually have your head chopped off if the only life we have is today. And I will suggest our world wants you to believe that. You only get to go around once in the world, grab all the gusto you can. You need to be happy. You need to to be... Enjoy pleasure. Why? Because this moment is so important. But Paul is going to encourage us not to focus on this moment, but to focus on eternity. Don't be conformed to this world. The word conformed is, I'm bringing my third Greek word in just a few minutes, is the word schematics. First thing we did when we started our building is we hired an architect and the architect came in and he asked us a million questions and he began to draw schematics for the building. And when he was done, there were blueprints or schematics that the builder was supposed to follow and they mostly did, but but we had schematics that we built the building by. Paul's point is don't allow the world to draw your blueprint. Don't allow the world to conform you, to, to force you into its mold. Rather, we are to be transformed. And yes, I apologize for bringing too much Greek this morning, but this is another Greek word that you're familiar with. It's the word metamorphosis. When our kids were young, my wife would every single spring go and look for milkweed. Not because she loved the smell of milkweed or it was such a pretty plant, because there is this rather ugly black and yellow worm-like creature on it. And she would eventually scour the milkweed until she finally found a caterpillar and she would bring the milkweed to our house and she'd put it in a a glass jar, she'd put a lid on it and the kids would have to bring a a caterpillar will grow by 20 times its size, eat someplace between 18 and 20 leaves until one day they would go in and it would jay. It would hang upside down from a branch or the top of the jar and then the most bizarre, the most unimaginable thing happens. It sheds all of its skin and suddenly it appears more like an acorn than a worm. It doesn't look like anything it had before and it will sit in this 
chrysalis, as they call it, for a period of 10 to 14 days. And during that time, this chrysalis will start to get dark and darker and darker, and then it will suddenly turn translucent. And then the most amazing miracle of nature takes place. This worm comes out of its cocoon entirely metamorphosized, entirely changed. It is completely different. Renee did it so often that they began to eat tomato leaves in our backyard, which I don't think they're supposed to do, so I don't know if there's suddenly a 30-foot monarch. It's our fault, sorry. (laughs) But a monarch becomes this incredible picture of a transformation. And that's exactly the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. You and I are to metamorphosize. But what's really interesting is the word that he uses is a present tense word, unlike the aorist, which speaks of a a past action. This is a continuing action. But it's also a passive word, which means you can't change yourself. That you allow a force beyond yourself to change you. But interestingly, it's an imperative, which means it's a command to allow an outside force to change you. I believe what Paul is calling us to do is to allow the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to shape us, to change us, to make us something radically different that everyone who sees us will say, wow, you're different. You used to look like a worm. You now look like a butterfly. What happened? I've been transformed How? Now, I I have to be honest, I kind of wish Paul had spent a whole lot more time because he just says, by renewing your mind. Okay, what does that mean? If I can bring in a a couple other passages, in in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is going to describe it this way, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And teach and admonish. Why do I teach and admonish? May I suggest you will never know a subject better than if you are forced to teach it. I have spent hours this week on these two verses. I have been meditating on it. I have been thinking about it. I have been listening and reading others because I knew this morning I would have to stand up here and try and explain it. I know you're going to say, well, I'm not a teacher. I would suggest that there is nothing better for any of us than to take someone with us and to study God's word and explain it and be explained to you. Paul says that dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And oh, by the way, singing is really good too. You should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there is that favorite topic of Paul that he just keeps coming back to that we don't very often with gratitude. It begins with thanksgiving, ends with thanksgiving, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is doing this put on, uh, take off and put on. He, He goes back and forth to a number of things. And in verse 22, he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I also think it's really fascinating to me where Paul puts this renew. In verse 1, he wants you to go back and reflect upon the mercies of God. I, I think allowing your mind to be renewed is taking the time regularly, daily, to reflect upon the mercies God has given you. And then he's going to go on in verse number 3 and say, oh, by the way, get involved in the lives of others. Love others. Help others. Use your gifting for others. And thus, Paul is going to share the way to find God's will is to constantly remember that my life is not my own, to stop being conformed to the world, and to be transformed with a new mind. What's that look like? Let me share a story from my life. This past fall, I, I, don't, I should have written the date down. It was a Tuesday. I, I know it was a Tuesday because the preceding Friday, I had taken my dad for a CAT scan. For those of you who don't know, my dad was diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma back in June. They found it because his heart was knocked out of rhythm. They eventually couldn't get it back into rhythm and did a CAT scan and found a mass in his lung. They did a biopsy, and the oncologist was pretty straightforward with us. This is an aggressive form of cancer, but it is highly treatable. And so they got him in, in the chemotherapy, and and the chemotherapy seemed to be working. He went back for his second PET scan, and the doctor, I don't know how he measured it, but he concluded it was like 92.7% gone. So I, I took my dad to get a third PET scan. My mom had another doctor's appointment, so my sister took her. I drove up, took my dad. And, and I didn't get to stick around for the oncologist to read it, but my sister was calling that day and was sharing that the cancer had returned, that somehow, I don't understand how PET scans work, the doctor could tell it not only had returned, but had mutated, and his prognosis was very grim. I had to begin to deal with what all of you will or have, saying goodbye to a parent. I was kind of in my office, not really sure what I should do next when my phone rang, and and the caller ID said, Dr. Jim Rinke. For those of you who don't know Jim Rinke, Jim was the regional minister of the North American Baptists, the upper Mississippi region. He, He was kind of my pastor. He was the guy that I went to when I had problems. He's the gentleman who helped me through a number of areas and the person I looked to, and I thought, fantastic. Jim's calling. Thank you, Lord. He can help me through But he was calling to share that he had resigned his position as regional minister. He was going to be announcing it uh, the next day because we had become really close friends. He wanted to call me and tell me uh, personally. And now I was facing a goodbye to two people. I think Paul was waiting until I got off the phone. Because as soon as I got off the phone, there was a knock at my door. And Paul stuck his head in and said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. 
And he shared how he had met Ashley, how he was planning on asking Ashley to marry him, and how that meant he would be leaving Victor Baptist Church. I wouldn't have answered my phone had it rang again, I don't think. (laughs) But I also didn't realize which of those calls was going to impact my life the most. Fast forward to uh, January or December. Harrison Lippard, pastors up in Steamboat Rock, very good friend. Out of the blue, he called and he said, we're working on replacing Jim. Would you ever consider taking his position? And I, I don't know what kind of answer I gave him, but running through my head is, that's nonsense, that's crazy. I, I can't leave Victor right now. Paul is leaving in just a couple weeks. This is a terrible time. And I did nothing with it. Two weeks later, he called back a second time and said, I, I, I still haven't seen a, a resume. Are you interested? And he tried his best to convince me that I had the proper gifting, I had the experience, I'd make a great regional minister. He really think, thought that I should put my name in, and, and I listened. This time, I actually went and talked to Renee, and over the past 25 years, People have contacted us, and every time we've talked, it wasn't the right place, it wasn't the right time. Renee has almost always been very reluctant. Why would we want to leave, Victor? And this time she said, I think this is the position for you. Over the course of the next couple days, two more members of the RLT called me and gave me the same spiel Harrison did. You'd make a great regional minister. I really think you should put your name in. And so I decided, well, I guess... I need to prayerfully begin to consider, could this possibly be God's will for my life? I prayed about it. I I spent time in his word. I reached out to several people whose opinions I really respected, hoping someone would give me an out. All three of them said, I think you'd make a great regional minister. You should pursue it. So I reluctantly sent my resume. I was told at the time they were going to do Zoom interviews the first part of January, in person the end of January, and hopefully have somebody hired by March 1st. The first part of January came and went, and I thought, it's that whole thing, you know, where you're willing to do something but don't actually have to do it. You get the best of both worlds. The day before my father passed away, I was up in the cities, and I drove home on Tuesday. As I'm driving home, Harrison called me and said, we'd really like to do a Zoom interview. And I said, Harrison, my dad is dying. There's no way I can do this. I'm not in the right place. I'm sorry. This is just the wrong time. He was very understanding and said, "I, I, I get it. My dad actually passed away the following day. The next Monday, he called and said, I I know that your dad died. I know his funeral's on Saturday, but could you give us an hour? All we want is an hour. And I said, I can give you an hour. I met with him on Zoom. They reached out to me, and a week ago Friday, they asked for an in-person interview. I sat down with them for four or five hours up at Village Creek. I had to, the annual meeting for Village Creek For those of you who don't know, I I, I chair the board at Village Creek. We were scheduled to have our annual budget meeting the day of my dad's funeral, and so that got pushed off. I needed to get up there anyway to to work through the budget with the executive director, and so it was kind of two reasons to be up there. I I met with them for four or five hours. I then sat down with the executive director, went through the budget, and they said, can you come back in? 
And they said, we would unanimously like to offer you the position of regional minister. I said, well, can I have a little bit of time to pray about it, to think about it? Last Sunday, I went to Larissa's house up in Cedar Rapids, sat down with my kids, shared what was going on. And then Monday night, I met with the deacons and shared that I will be ending my time at Victor this spring. I don't want to leave, but I want even less to not follow God's will for my life. I can't possibly begin to thank you enough. I came as a 33-year-old person filled with energy, and you have shaped me and molded me, and I will always love each of you. I've had the privilege of burying many of your parents and grandparents. I've had the privilege of marrying many of your kids. I have been with most of you at some point in the hospital. You will always be near and dear to my heart. The good news, if there is such a thing, is I will come back regularly. You will be one of the churches that I get to care for. But sometime in May, haven't got a date figured out yet, In fact, I don't even know where we're moving. We have to move someplace in Minnesota, Iowa, Illinois, or Wisconsin. So if you have a house in one of those four places, let me know. But we, this morning, are sharing. God's will is always good, even when it's not fun. Father, I I thank you. I, I thank you for the way that you have worked in this church to me. I thank you for each one, and, and God, I do pray for the next few weeks and months as, as I finish my time here and move on. God, I pray that you would allow it to be a wonderful experience for all of us. God, I'm confident that you have someone far better for this congregation. Bring them soon. And Father, I do pray that whether it is enjoyable or hard, that each of us would be willing to follow your will not our own. For it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.